So you've had a day, one day, and I can imagine that in the mind, you know, you may have thought, well, you know, I'll just go and do five days of meditation and what the heck, I'll throw my shoes off and put my feet up and have a little bit of meditation and maybe things will be just swimming and it's probably some difficulty today. First days of retreats are always very difficult. So for those of you who've not been in retreat before, I promise you that the odds are great that it will get better. I promise that. You can have your money back if it doesn't. (laughs) So here you are, and it reminds me of um, a Peanuts cartoon I saw the other day in which Charlie Brown is lying down in the first frame and he says, sometimes I stay awake all night. And in the second frame it says, and I ask, where did I go wrong? And in the third frame it says, and then a voice comes back and says to me, this is gonna take more than one night. So you may be feeling a little bit of that, just from needing to settle down and settle in, arrive here, and let go of whatever you, whatever issues you left at home. But it will, it will be fine. So the Buddha once said, abandon what is unskillful. One can abandon the unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If this abandoning of the unskillful would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as it brings benefit and happiness, Therefore, I say, abandon what is unskillful. Cultivate the good. One can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation were to bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to do it. But as this cultivation brings benefit and happiness, I say, cultivate the good. So we're asked to abandon the unskillful and cultivate the good. And one way of this cultivation of the good is by the establishment of what are called the four Brahma-viharas, the four sublime states. They're called boundless, excellent, lofty, 
their powerful states of mind, the four immeasurables. And Brahma Viharas in Pali means divine abodes or heavenly home. And these four divine abodes that we can establish in cultivating the good are called metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka. Metta is loving kindness. Karuna is compassion. Mudita is sympathetic joy or appreciative joy, it is sometimes translated as, and upeka, which is equanimity. We'll be talking as the week uh, goes on about all of these four Brahma-viharas, these four excellent, lofty states of mind, boundless states of mind. But tonight I'd like to uh, focus on metta, the practice that we're doing. This practice of metta is a natural emergence from uh, meditation practices. And from those meditation practices, we see interrelatedness of all things. If we add up all the interchanges we have with others every day, we begin to see life as sustained by a flow of interconnection. That interconnection is the play of love at work. We begin to understand through this practice egolessness and non-separation. We become one with all things, not in a new age or mushy or sloppy way, but in a genuinely profound understanding that no thing arises by itself or exists by itself, that everything comes from causes and conditions and all phenomena are irretrievably tied together. And in the recognition of this interconnection and unity, we understand in a seminal way that the need for love is not simply on an emotional level, but at the core of our very being. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, it is because our own human existence is so dependent on the help of others that our need for love lies at the very foundation of our existence. Therefore, we need a genuine sense of responsibility and sincere concern for the welfare of others. So this quality of sincere concern for the welfare of others is what is known as metta, loving kindness. And it's distinguished from love as we usually conceive it. It is making, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, our ultimate end, the creation of the beloved community. If we look around us, it's not hard to see 
the absence and the presence of love. We see the absence of love in war and poverty, economic injustice, racism, ethnic conflict, ecological degradation, inhumane solutions to human problems and human suffering. We see the building of walls rather than the tearing down of them. And these all stem from our inability to trust one another, to honor differences, to engage in respectful dialogue, and to reach mutual understanding. In a way, we've overdeveloped our critical faculties. We constantly analyze and criticize ourselves and each other. And if we take an honest look within, we may see a certain guardedness around our heart. Or we, we may even see a thick and impenetrable barricade. For others, it may be a thinner protective shield or a contraction that only emerges under threatening conditions. And what triggers this sense of threat? It's a suspicion that we're not truly loved or we're not truly lovable or acceptable as we are. And what happens is a numbing down or a shutting down of the heart in an attempt to deflect the pain of that. And this numbing or shutting down of our heart disconnects us from our own heart and inevitably exacerbates our sense of love's scarcity. Because of the confusion and the pain and the suffering that we carry around and in us, our love gets buried. And it becomes a pattern. Not knowing that we're loved as we are, we numb our hearts to ward off the pain. And by that, we wound our hearts by shutting down the pathways through which love can flow into and through us. And it's not surprising then that as we do that as individuals, that on a collective level, this deep wound in the human psyche leads to a world that is racked by struggle and stress and dissension. All beauty and honor of the world arise from the same root, the presence or the absence of love. And even though you may be thinking, well, you know, many of these problems in the world really require political solutions and what can we do, uh, you know, sitting here saying a few phrases, sending a few phrases of well-being. We know that political settlements that lack genuine caring and respect for all people eventually fall apart and lead to new conflicts. Again, Martin Luther King said that sooner or later, all the people of the world will have to discover a way to live together in peace. If this is to be achieved, we must evolve for all human conflict, a method that rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation, 
and the foundation for such a method is love. And we know that when the presence of love is moving and alive in us, that life feels on target and meaningful, regardless of outer circumstances. We feel in touch, connected to something larger than our small self. And this lifts the burden of alienation and isolation from our shoulders. And that when love is absent, something feels sad and missing. It's hard to find joy, even in the midst of favorable external circumstances. When Bill Gates was asked how all of the money that he had made had changed his life, he said, well, for starters, it hasn't brought happiness. And that is because love is the very fabric of what we are. In Corinthians, it said, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a clanging gong. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all knowledge, and if I have all faith that can move mountains and have not love, I am nothing. Even the new um, experiments in neuroscience has, have confirmed that our connections with others affect healthy development and functioning of the brain, of the endocrine system and the immune system, and our emotional balance. So this love is the central force that holds life together and allows it to function on an individual and world scale. And so in this practice of metta, this very simple and elegant practice that we've been doing all day, we practice not for ourselves alone, but in a deep sense, we practice for all beings, for the well-being of our planet, our earth, that we may all realize the love which is the very fabric of what we are. So not only does engaging in this meta-practice uproot our feeling of isolation and of disconnection. But it also uncovers a radiant, joyful heart that is within each of us. And beneath the wound of this illusion of separation is a deep connection to ourselves and to all beings. So when we free ourselves from the illusion of separation, that allows us to live in natural freedom. And the Buddha described this path as the liberation of the heart that is love. So let's talk about metta.
You've been doing it now for several hours. You've been cultivating what we call a bhavana, the bhavana meaning the bringing forth of a state of metta in the heart. And that state of metta is an attitude rather than a feeling. And the proximate cause of it is seeing good in others. It removes resentment and uncovers love in the heart, as the Buddha said. Its qualities are friendliness and consideration, kindness, gentleness, generosity, and wishing well. It is a boundless and inclusive wish for everyone to be in the state of experiencing metta. It offers care and well-wishing to another without expectation or demand, without a desire to possess. With metta, there is no possessor and there is no possession. So it doesn't depend on the person to whom you're sending metta, whether it's yourself or a benefactor or a good friend or any of the other people to whom we'll be sending it this week. It doesn't require that any of them have any particular way of being with you. It's not a businessman's deal that if we send you love and make these good wishes, that you'll do these particular things or become a particular way. It's trustworthy, it's unconditional, and doesn't require things to be a certain way. No matter what happens, we still love. In what we do in metta is we step beyond our small self to embrace the other as part of a beloved whole. This metta that we work with, that we work to cultivate and to bring forth, is in a ground of love that is found beyond judgment and blame. Much of our development as uh, Western beings is a development of our analytic and critical faculties. And in a way, that is much of what has made this world um, devoid of metta. We spend so much time criticizing, judging, and blaming ourselves that we've pushed out the metta that is a natural part of our being. And yet, that doesn't mean that we are without fault or that we are perfect. As a matter of fact, one of the um, realizations that metta brings is that we are all human beings. And as someone, one of you said today, nobody is perfect. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So metta is 
an antidote to hatred and to fear. Hate and fear are the enemies of metta. Another um, talk on love by Martin Luther King, he said, I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems, and I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today. I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong love, and I have seen too much hate I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South, on the faces of too many Klansmen and citizens' counselors in the South to want to hate myself. I know that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong when we do it, because God is love. He who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. And fear, when the Buddha first taught this practice of fear, he taught it to his monks because he had sent them out to... um, meditate in the forest and the legend goes that there were so many tree spirits in the forests and the tree spirits were quite angry at the monks for coming and disturbing them so they made lots of noise and raised smells and did ghoulish visions so that the monks got very scared and went back to the Buddha and said please please send us to another forest these these spirits are much too Uh, difficult. And the Buddha said, I'm going to send you back to the same forest, but I'm going to send you back with the only protection that you will need. And so he sent, he taught them metta and taught them not only to recite the phrases, but to actually practice them. And it's said that the monks went back to the forest and actually practiced metta. And that the tree spirits were so moved by the beauty of the loving energy filling the forest that they resolved to care for the monks so that the monks uh, continued to practice in the the same forest. Of course, the inner uh, message of that story is that a mind filled with fear can still be penetrated by the quality of metta and that a mind saturated by metta cannot be overcome by fear. Even if fear arises, the mind is not overpowered. And so in practice, we open to the truth of our actual experience and to the changing relationships in life. Because metta is not one 
that is uh, how we usually conceive of love as love with desire or attachment, because metta is not that, it's not bound to desire. There is absolutely no need to pretend that things are other than they are. So in your practice, so much may be coming up that is the very opposite of what you're thinking or, or projecting uh, that a metta practice should look like. You may be thinking that if I do these phrases of sending goodwill to myself and to my benefactor and to all of those other beings, that actually there should be, as, we've, as, as Kamala has referred to, the, the warm feeling in the heart. And many times that warm feeling does come forth from the practice. But many times also what comes forth is the very opposite of metta, perhaps even an aversion to the person to whom you're sending it, or some deep wound in the heart begins to arise. The practice doesn't require that you cover it over or that you push it down or ignore it or deny it. What actually the practice requires is that you acknowledge the presence of whatever is coming up in, in your heart, whether it's a state of fear or loneliness or alienation or despair. Kamala, I think this afternoon in response to, um, to someone's question talked about um, the fact that in our tradition, the mind and heart are represented by one word in Pali, chitta. And this chitta is not just thoughts or emotions in a narrow sense of arising from the brain, but this chitta represents a whole vast range of consciousness. And in metta, we can touch this and we can open up to everything with this healing force of love. We can connect to different forces within ourselves and different experiences in our lives. And when we are able to do that, this is the ground of freedom. Because metta opens up our ability to embrace all parts of ourselves and all parts of the world. Through practice, our mind is open enough to include the entirety of life in full awareness, whether it's pleasure or pain or gain or loss or praise or blame. And George will talk about this later on in the week. So this word metta in Pali has two, uh, two roots, two, two root meanings. One is gentle. It's like a gentle rain that doesn't discriminate but falls on all places. There's a wonderful um, haiku from Isa, a Japanese poet, who says, "In the uh, shade of the cherry tree, in the shade of the cherry tree, there are no strangers," and that is like this gentle quality of metta that doesn't discriminate but actually embraces all and holds all. And the second root of metta is a friend. The Buddha said that a good friend is someone who is constant in our times of happiness 
and in times of adversity and unhappiness. A true friend is a helper who will protect us when we're unable to take care of ourselves. And that's the quality of metta. So this, the foundation of metta is to know how to be our own best friend. The Buddha said you can search the entire universe looking for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person cannot be found anywhere. You are more deserving of your love than anyone else. This is a poem from Galway Canal called St. Francis in the Sow. He says, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. So to reteach a thing its loveliness is the nature of metta. Through this loving kindness, everything and everyone can flower again from within. And when we recover that knowledge of our own loveliness and that of others, self-blessing happens naturally and beautifully. And that is that quality of friendliness, of friendship, that is metta. Metta is neither passion nor sentimentality. As I said before, it's not wanting or owning or possessing, nor having expectations that are not met, as Kamala talked about this afternoon. I will love you if. So the spirit of metta is unconditional and unobstructive. The Buddha likened it to a cool river that cannot burn. So though someone may disappoint us, we don't stop being their friend. And even if we disappoint ourselves, we don't stop being a friend to ourselves. We don't dwell in aversion towards what we consider bad or unacceptable. It's not that we think that everything is okay or that we condone behavior that uh, is harmful or causes suffering. But there is a difference in the quality of the mind that meets that behavior. Nor is it sentimental, because sentimentality um, is a quality of mind that essentially limits itself to only experiences of pleasure. And when we are sentimental, we cover up our rough edges or the rough edges of 
someone else that we don't want to see the trouble spots and the defects. And then everything is, is, appears to be quite nice. And so we gloss over what is difficult or what needs attention. Sentimentality finds pain unbearable and so rejects it. Our vision becomes narrow when we need things to be just so, when we measure things against a standard of perfection that is uh, incapable of being met, and then we can't accept things as they are. When we do that, we cut off vital parts of our lives, and they end up missing. So to avoid feeling pain, we may shut down crucial parts of our awareness, even though that internal separation may be deadening. And as we lose touch with the inner life, we become then dependent on the shifting winds of external circumstances and change. When, when we do that, the fear of pain becomes our constant companion as we're pushing it away. So let's talk a little bit about the practice. This practice, we progress, we send these wishes of well-being and of loving-kindness in a progression of metta from ourselves as the uh, person that's most easy to love, and we move to a benefactor as we can arouse a stream of love in the heart when we reflect on the good qualities of our benefactor and good friend. And as the heart opens and becomes um, vaster and more inclusive, we begin to realize that all beings are worthy of our metta and that our metta can actually, that state of mind actually helps us to transcend preferences. And so we move through, as we will tomorrow and the next days, we'll move through uh, to a neutral person and then to, um, I'm sorry, to a good friend and then to a neutral person and then from that neutral person to a difficult person. And so as you can see, as, as the metta practice progresses, our hearts Become, it, they become more and more malleable and more and more easy to include that which is difficult, that which might before have been met with aversion and um, states of mind that cut off and suppress. One of the, 
ways in one, one thing that happens when we are doing our metta practice as we, as I uh, alluded to before, the very states that we, um, that we are cultivating, the opposite of the very states that we're cultivating begin to arise. And sometimes what may happen is you may notice that um, states of aversion arise, states of desire, states of uh, low energy or restlessness, state, and maybe even a doubt in the mind that this is not a practice for me or I can't do this practice or this practice isn't, quote, working, whatever that means. And these are very natural and um, usual occurrences that happen. And so if they come up in the mind, not to worry about it, not to think that if they happen, that you're doing the practice wrong or that um, it's just not something that you're capable of. There, as I mentioned before, in our practice, we exclude nothing, we suppress nothing, we deny nothing, we avoid nothing. So we have ways of working with these states of mind. And Bhante will, um, will talk more about that tomorrow. But just to know that these are states of mind that naturally arise in the human heart and the human mind. And that when they do come up, in the meantime, what you can do is just simply acknowledge them. And rather than meeting them with aversion, meet them with your metta. So if you're sending metta to, um, to a benefactor or, ev- or even to yourself, and um, some feeling of grief or fear or uh, doubt or uh, aversion arises, you can stop working with the sending of the phrases to um, the subject, the object, um, the person, and instead turn your metta toward yourself and to this very state of mind that is arising. So for instance, the state of mind that is averse to, um, to the person or to maybe to something that they did or to, um, to the actual person themselves because sometimes the mind can flip that way. What you can do is simply turn the attention to the metta, to, to the feeling, and actually send metta to it, send metta to yourself. May I not feel aversion to this aversion? May I feel safe and happy and peaceful, notwithstanding this feeling of aversion that is arising? May I know peace, may I know love, may I be filled with loving kindness. It's not necessary to uh, push it away or to think that it needs to go away and actually be there with as much kindness and gentleness and friendliness as you can muster, even with that feeling. And that is the power of the practice, that it's... um, that it doesn't require you to be anyway, and you don't need to add any sort of um, yardstick about how you need to be or what you need to be.
And when we are sending metta to those that um, may have harmed us or who may um, be engaged in behavior that causes suffering, it's not that we're encouraging or condoning wrongdoing, but that we're knowing that that heart of metta can open to include even our enemies. I think that is a large part of Christian love, the um, requirement that we love our enemies. And in a way, metta teaches us how to do that. It teaches us that we can be kind to unpleasant people, even if we can't like them. That we don't have to dwell in aversion, uh, because when we dwell in aversion, it's impossible to be kind, and we create suffering around what is unpleasant, what is already unpleasant. So if you reflect on it, you can actually begin to see that what metta does is it cuts, it cuts away from uh, the way in our usual and habitual way of responding to uh, difficulties or to unpleasant situations. It cuts away from adding aversion to an already difficult situation. If you've not already noticed, you will, as the, pro- as the practice progresses, notice that as, as you do your metta practice, your relationship may change to many of the people to whom you're sending metta. I've noticed over time that all of the people that I used to choose as my difficult people are no longer difficult people for me. And so it be- it's becoming harder and harder and harder for me to find a difficult person to send metta to. I won't talk about who um, somebody that we all know that I use as my difficult person. Um, and in, and it was, I was amused when I was in a board meeting at IMS when uh, the elections happened and someone said they were so happy that the elections turned out that way because now they would have a difficult person to send to in their metta. <laughs> so I too am quite grateful for that. So this is a wonderful story um, of, about a neutral person and how love can begin in the smallest of ways. During my second month of nursing school, our professor gave us a pop quiz. I was a conscientious student and had breezed through the questions until I read the last one. What is the first name of the woman who cleans the school? Surely this was some kind of joke. I had seen the cleaning woman several times. She was tall, dark-haired, a woman in her 50s, but how would I know her name? I handed in my paper, leaving the last question blank. Before class ended, one student asked if the last question would count toward our grade. Absolutely, said the professor. In your careers, 
you will meet many people. All are significant. They deserve your attention and care, even if all you do is smile and say hello. I've never forgotten that lesson. I also learned her name was Dorothy. So just to, just to close, I'd like to recite for you um, some of the many blessings that come from cultivating the power of a loving heart. Because since the time of the Buddha, these have been recited by many people. Here are some of them. Your dreams will become sweet. You will fall asleep easily. You will waken contented. Your thoughts will be pleasant. Your health will be improved. Angels and devas will love and protect you. Animals will sense your love and not harm you. People will welcome you everywhere. Your babies will be happy. If you lose things, they will be returned. If you fall off a cliff, a tree will be there to catch you. <laughs> the world will be more peaceful around you and elephants will bow down to you. True love is unconquerable and irresistible, says Meher Baba, and it will go on gathering power and spreading itself until it transforms everyone it touches. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.